sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. The books you see around you are those used to research our show and the uh, individual here to my right along with uh, managing domestic duties serves as our reader for uh, any passages that will be directly quoted uh, from the uh, sources. Her name is uh, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I do hope everyone listening is enjoying the uh, onset of autumn We've got the fire going here in the study, and things are quite pleasant and calm after a rather uh, unsettling first week of November. Yes, much better. We were dealing with some unexpected problems, or at least something I hardly expected, though Mrs. Carswell... I've already apologized for the inconvenience, and I told you you could deduct the repairs from my next check. I wasn't going to scold you about the damages. I was just going to say that the problem wasn't unexpected as, as far as you were concerned. It was, though. I was warned about something bad happening, but I had no idea what it would mean. I've never had anything happen like this before. Well, it wasn't... I should explain that Mrs. Carswell, uh, who is an avid beekeeper... Um, well... We're talking about some Halloween fortune-telling and a message Mrs. Carswell got, which she did not like. I didn't like the way it was delivered. The attitude. For those who hadn't listened, the way it was delivered was through the uh, humming of bees. Which you think is ridiculous. Uh, Not so much, since something terrible did happen. You're just thinking about your plumbing. No, I'm willing to consider the idea that one could be uh, lulled by the humming, that there's some sort of hypnotic state you might It enter. was not lulling. It was anything but that. I've never heard be so angry and hateful. It's all very upsetting, and I don't think you understand. This was the last thing I wanted to do. Well, uh, of course, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, since it was your decision to... It was not. It's this house. Something about this house. Or the move here. They just couldn't adapt to your house, maybe. My bees have never reacted like this. It was not something I expected. Well, I certainly didn't expect to see bees coming up in my toilet. They were just floating there. It wasn't like they were swarming I must have flushed four times, and I could have sworn more bees came up each time. It was the only humane thing to do, and it was for our safety. That sort of aggressiveness can spread like wildfire in a hive. You have no idea about bees. Uh, The plumber found even more. He couldn't believe it. I don't know how you even have any bees left. I only drowned the bad ones. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Everything is better now. It was just something that had to be done, and I did it. I didn't know you were going to be showcasing it in the recording. I'm sorry. It was just uh, such a strange week. Everything is better. I do feel like this gives us a fresh start. I was feeling a horrible tension in this house, but now everything's better. Uh, That's good. That's good. I guess we can just start the show then.
No more fretting about the week's chaos? Yes, please. Episode 37, Drowned in Blood. Butcher Lore. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a uh, historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive a number of uh, monthly rewards related to the uh, production of this show, and I'll have more on Patreon at the end of this episode. Now, because I'm involved in organizing Krampus activities for December, which for me will include a mini book tour in England this year, I have to record our December episodes in November this year, which means, I'm afraid, we'll only have this uh, one episode out this month. But I hope it might still provide our listeners with their uh, fill of uh, meat. So much meat. Uh, mostly from animals. But uh, word to the wise, this may not be a favorite episode for any of our uh, vegetarian or vegan listeners out there. But it does seem somehow appropriate for a month of uh, Thanksgiving feasts. The butcher that stuck this rammy lads was up to his knees in blood. And the little boy who held the bow was carried away by the flood. And the butcher that killed his ram's fur was up to his waist in blood. And four and twenty butcher boys were washed away in flood. Sing his prayers up to his thighs in blood. The boy that held the bow was drowned in the flood. And the little boy who held the bow was washed away in the flood. And he ran. The ram in question here is the uh, Derby Ram, which is the name of this song with its origin in Derby, England. Uh, and once it made its way across the Atlantic, it sometimes became the Derby Ram. Uh, references to this song begin appearing in the record in the early or mid-1800s, but it seems to be much, much older. It's basically a uh, musical tall tale in which the singer gleefully lies about the immense size of this ram. Uh, many of the verses describe what will be done with these oversized body parts after the slaughter. The ears will be turned into leather aprons. The eyeballs will prove useful, as the lyric says. All the kids in Derby came begging for his eyes to make a pair of foot. There's one verse uh, often left out as it references a certain masculine parts of the beast. It took all the boys a darby to carry away his bones. Took all the maids a darby to roll away his stones. But the Derby Ram is not just a song. Under the name Derby Top or Old Top, which is a regional word for ram, um, its story has also been, and, and still is, enacted as a sort of uh, mummer's play. In comes I with me knife and steel. Where I stick him, he's gonna squeal. Where's this tuck then? <laughs> Call this a tuck. The ram is portrayed by an actor concealed under a cloth from which protrudes a stick ending in a carved ram head or the skull of a ram sometimes. Um, like the uh, Marilud, which the figure resembles, 
this creature is also part of a Christmas custom. The play, which is accompanied by the song, sometimes features uh, another clown-like figure, a man dressed as an old woman, a butcher, and his young assistant carrying the bowl in which the uh, pantomime blood is to be caught. And four and twenty butcher boys were washed away in flood. There's really not much to the play. It quickly builds up to a uh, slapstick slaughter scene in which the beast is dispatched. and ends with an appeal for donations. And now our song is ended, we have no more to say. So give us a Christmas box and let us go away, singing fade, 19th and early 20th century folklorists love to speculate about such uh, mummer's plays representing survivals of ancient pagan ritual. Uh, the case of the Derby Ram, viewed in this way, would be a vestige of blood sacrifices offered by our ancestors at year's end. Um, but such ideas are roundly rejected today. Uh, as we'll see, there may be a bit more to investigate here. A popular theme in medieval art was called the labors of the months, uh, depicting agricultural tasks such as sowing and reaping to be accomplished each month. The image for November and years later, sometimes December, was that of swine being slaughtered. The old Anglo-Saxon name for November, in fact, was Blotmonat, which means month of sacrifice. The uh, Saxon word is from the Norse blot for sacrifices which were performed throughout the year, but which were particularly important at the beginning of winter, that is the uh, Yule blot over which Freyr and Freya presided. These two figures, not by chance, were represented by a boar and sow, respectively. Freyr's mount was the gold-bristled boar Gullinbursti, and um, these bristles of the uh, sacrificed animal played a role in the curious custom which in English would be called bristle vows. That is, a toast made by Norse chieftains with one hand upon the bristles of the sacrificial animal, uh, in which the uh, toaster promises or brags of deeds to be accomplished in the coming year. The blood shed in the slaughter played an important role, being splashed or slung over the idols and walls of the temple, and the meat, which was shared in a ritual feast, would be boiled in a large fire kindled in the center of the temple. To give you something of the uh, flavor and the gore of these uh, Norse uh, sacrificial rites, we'll look at a famous 11th century account by the chronicler Adam of Bremen describing activities in the temple of Uppsala in uh, his uh, Deeds of the Bishops of Hamburg. While this isn't necessarily a Yule rite, it is one, we're told, that was dedicated to Freyr. The sacrifice is as follows. Of every kind of male creature, nine victims are offered. By the blood of these creatures, it is the custom to appease the gods. Their bodies, moreover, are hanged in a grove, which is adjacent to the temple. This grove is so sacred to the people that the separate trees in it are believed to be holy because of the death or putrefaction of the sacrificial victims. There are even dogs and horses hung beside human beings. 
A certain Christian told me that he had seen 72 of their bodies hanging up together. For nine days, feasts and sacrifices of this kind are celebrated. Every day they sacrifice one human being in addition to other animals, so that in nine days there are 72 victims which are sacrificed. This uh, particularly horrific sacrifice is supposed to have only been conducted every nine years, and uh, some of the details have been called into question as the story is one told from a Christian perspective, but uh, archaeological findings on what's believed to be the site of the temple do seem to corroborate certain other details that uh, Adam of Bremen provides in his text. While all this takes place in Scandinavia, there's a possible link here to the uh, Anglo-Saxon Modrenik, uh, or Knight of the Mothers, which the uh, English chronicler Bede mentions being celebrated on Christmas Eve in the 8th century. This rite seems to have been dedicated to those figures known from uh, Romano-Germanic votive inscriptions as the uh, Matronae, or Matres, that is, uh, female deities always appearing in trios and comparable to the classical fates. We don't know for certain if blood sacrifice was part of this rite, but it seems uh, comparable to the uh, Nordic Diserblot, in which uh, animals were sacrificed to the Diser, uh, female spirits uh, likewise appearing in threes and associated with uh, fate among Germanic peoples. In any case, it should not be surprising that England's early Anglo-Saxon celebrations, marking the beginning of winter, bear some connection to the uh, bloody sacrificial rites of Scandinavia. Returning to the uh, Yulblot dedicated to uh, Freyr and Freya and their swine embodiments, we see something of this theme carried uh, into later calendrical customs of England. As I've mentioned, the uh, slaughtering of swine was imagined as the uh, labor of the month for November or December. Um, it seems to have moved between the span of these two months, depending on regional climate and also the resources and technology that made it more or less feasible to keep and feed the swine longer into the winter. And if they were not being slaughtered in November, they were being fattened up for the slaughter through a custom called panage which designates the uh, peasants' right to loose their swine in the Lord's forest to forage for fattening nuts, which would be falling from the trees this time of year. Of course, uh, hunting rights in these forests were restricted, and it was here that the aristocrats hunted in November and December, their equivalent of the peasants' swine, namely wild boar, which by the 13th century had become increasingly rare and hence particularly valuable and suitable for the uh, Christmas feasts of the nobility. The presentation of the head of the slaughtered boar itself became ritualized in its presentation, being accompanied by trumpets and song, including the famous boar's head carol, or carols as there were a number of versions, uh, with the best known being that preserved in the tradition at Oxford's Queen's College. The boar's head in hand bedecked with bay and rosemary. So I pray you, my masters, be merry. There's an amusing legend as to how this ceremonial meal began, one which William Henry Husk relates in his 1868 book, 
songs of the nativity being Christmas carols. He explains that the meal is regarded as... A commemoration of an act of valor performed by a student of the college who, while walking in the neighboring forest of Shotover and reading Aristotle, was suddenly attacked by a wild boar. The furious beast came open-mouthed upon the youth, who, however, very courageously, and with a happy presence of mind, thrust the volume he was reading down the boar's throat, crying, Gregum est, and fairly choked the savage with the sage. While the boar's head and flesh would be valued for its scarcity and aristocratic associations, one can find links to its uh, magical or religious um, associations perhaps more easily in the Saxon's Germanic homeland, where the boar or pig is regarded as a symbol of uh, good luck associated with the turning of the year. The expression ich habe Schwein gehabt, uh, literally meaning I had pig, is still used today to mean I was lucky. And uh, pig-shaped cakes, uh, cookies, and uh, marzipan candies are common throughout Scandinavia and Germany, even today as tokens of Christmas and New Year's luck. In November, much of this uh, slaughter and bloodshed has coalesced around St. Martin's Day, November the 11th. This is the feast day of St. Martin of Tours, a Roman soldier known for a legend in which he cuts apart his cloak in order to give half to a freezing beggar. In the Middle Ages, St. Martin's Day was regarded as the uh, date on which winter began, as well as the beginning of the Advent season anticipating Christmas. It seems particularly important in Germanic countries, where it's still uh, marked by bonfires and lantern processions, but more universally, it's celebrated by feasting and drinking of new wine uh, in Germany and France, which uh, makes St. Martin the patron of the inebriated. And throughout the continent and Britain, the day is one for feasts involving animals slaughtered for or on this day. And of course, pigs are among these animals, giving rise to the expression, Martinmas will come as it does to every hog. A wry English way of once saying, Death comes to all. And there's a Spanish equivalent, Acala cerdo, le llega su San Martin. Or, every pig gets its Saint Martin, meaning the same. Beef was also eaten and especially fattened for the occasion and went by the name the Martelmas, or simply the Mart. Uh, a reason Shakespeare refers to the uh, corpulent Falstaff as the Martelmas in uh, Henry IV. There's also a legend told in Stamford, Lincolnshire, of St. Martin encountering the devil in the form of a mad cow. Um, one which may have been made up after the fact to justify a custom much like the running of the bulls in Paloma, Spain. Richard Butcher, in his uh, 1646 book, The Survey and Antiquities of the Town of Stamford, describes it as a sport of no pleasure except to take a pleasure in beastliness and mischief. He goes on to say that the most wild bull possible is chosen by the town's butchers, is corralled, and then finally, following a proclamation by the town's alderman, the bull is turned out at the alderman's house, and then, heavy skeevy, tag and drag, 
men and children of all sorts and sizes, with all the dogs in the town, promiscuously running after him with their bull clubs, spattering dirt in each other's faces, that one would think them to be so many furies started out of hell for the punishment of Cerberus. And, of course, this does not go well for the bull. Uh, rhyme, he includes, further describes the animal's fate. A ragged troop of boys and girls do pillow him with stones. With clubs, with whips, and many nips, they part his skin from bones. Birds are not exempt from uh, Satan Martin's bloodlust either. In Sweden, the goose is the victim, and roast goose the traditional dish, a custom that was picked up by the French. I don't believe the French, uh, however, embrace the other traditional Swedish dish for St. Martin's, uh, svartsoppa, a spicy soup made from goose blood. To bring good luck for the year or protect one from malevolent influences, at least in the old days, this uh, Swedish St. Martin's goose would have to be sacrificed on the doorstep of the home and the four corners of this uh, domicile would be daubed with its blood. There's a similar practice in Ireland by which a rooster, chicken, or goose would be killed for the feast and its blood likewise sprinkled on the four corners, the lentils or doorsteps, while invoking the Holy Trinity. The custom is still carried out in certain remote corners and neglecting this tradition was in some places regarded as outright dangerous, according to an old saying. If blood is not drawn on Martinmas Eve, the blood that is shed will be your own. Neglecting this duty could have other frightful consequences, as in this account collected by the Irish Folklore Commission in the 1930s. Martin King used to kill a fowl every St. Martin's night. One year, he forgot it, and when he awoke in the morning, the floor from his bedroom to the kitchen was covered with blood. Martin washed out the floor, but when he awoke again the following morning, the floor was covered with blood again. This went on for three nights. A uh, rationale for these odd rituals is an old legend claiming that the... Uh, Fanatically humble St. Martin was so averse to any elevation of his status that upon hearing he was to be appointed bishop, hid himself away in a goose pen until the bird's cackling betrayed his location. Well, enough bloody St. Martin's customs. Uh, but before we leave Ireland, a snippet of an appropriately um, meaty song recorded in a pub in uh, County Waterford in 1933. And when came the call of the landlord, twas the pig oftentimes paid the rent. As I said earlier, there was some drift in uh, butcher customs by which livestock might be kept somewhat longer into the winter. A uh, 19th century tradition in Lower Bavaria fixes December 21st, St. Thomas Day, as the date for dispatching swine to uh, make sausages. 
And uh, this seems to have helped to shape a particular boogeyman associated with this day. In this region, on the night of December 21st, a demon or ogre by the name of Bloody Thomas stalks the land, brandishing an immense hammer. His blood-drenched appearance is thought to have been inspired by the gore-stained clothing of butchers occupied with the day's slaughter. According to a number of 19th century sources, a popular St. Thomas Day's prank had a farmer drenched to the toes in blood after the day's labors, frightening his children or young relatives. First, banging on the cottage door and thundering out some threats about bashing children's skulls with his hammer, he would then, with the children's uh, full and fearful attention upon him, open the door a crack and ever so slowly push one gory leg through the door. Uh, apparently this was all that was needed to clear the room and no further disclosure was necessary. Then there is that particularly gruesome butcher story associated with December's most famous saint, Nicholas. The uh, first version of it seems to have been set down in the mid-1100s by the early uh, Norman poet Wace, and it's been told with some variations since. But um, here's how the legend is recounted in J.R. Smith's 1898 folklore collection, The Reliquary and Illustrated Archaeologist. Many strange legends have gathered around the name of St. Nicholas, but the strangest of them all is that which tells how he became the patron of schoolboys, and a ghastly little tale it is. A pork butcher was sitting one night in his shop when three little boys who had lost their way appeared at the door and begged for a night's shelter. The man welcomed them quite kindly, gave them some supper and a bed, but no sooner were they well asleep than he chopped off their heads, for his supply of sausage meat had run short that morning. Just as he had finished packing their little bodies away in the brine, St. Nicholas knocked at the door and asked for food and lodging. He wished to sup, he said, on the three little boys who were in the brine tub. The butcher, conscience-stricken, recognized his visitor and made a full confession, whereupon the saint restored the small boys to life. The South English legendary, a huge uh, 13th to 14th century collection of saints' lives, offers a variant in which the boys have already been made into pasties and pies. It also provides uh, a bit of an explanation for the saint's arrival, which, rather than a matter of pure coincidence or divine providence, as in other versions, here has been occasioned by the boys' bedtime prayer invoking the saint. And in this version, the butcher is particularly pushy in hawking his pies to the saint, saying, I will sell two pennies worth to you for one. You can't find it this cheap anywhere. Buy them if you like. Nicholas, gifted as he is with supernatural insight, slyly asks if there might not be fresher meat on the premises, an insinuation that does not escape the butcher, who then breaks down and confesses his wicked deed. Though unheard of in the Eastern Church and considered rather ghastly there, and uh, hardly a tale emphasized in modern Catholic teaching, 
This story was extremely popular in medieval iconography, where the saint is frequently depicted with a salting tub containing three naked boys rejoicing in their resurrection. Nicholas's pairing with the children in these representations is believed to be a factor in his patronage of children. And ironically, the inclusion of the wooden barrel in these images also resulted in him being taken as the patron of brewers. Ils étaient trois petits enfants qui s'en allaient glaner au champ. Tant sont allés, tant sont venus, que sur le soir se sont perdus. S'en sont allés chez le boucher. Boucher, vous tu nous loger? The story is also told in a French song from the 16th century, The Legend of Saint Nicholas, which is uh, still sometimes sung by children in December, particularly in Lorraine, where it originated. It turns the wandering students into three gleaners, uh, those who pick by hand what's been left after reaping, and they find themselves lost in the fields when night overtakes them. Seeing a walled home in the distance, they seek overnight refuge. A uh, translation of the lyric from the old French uh, explains the rest. Hardly had they passed the wall when the butcher killed them all. He cut them up and put each bit like pork into the salting pit. I believe this song comes from the uh, Upper Lorraine, but it also seems to have influenced the tradition of the Lower German-speaking part of the duchy, where one finds a uh, December boogeyman, like the uh, German Knecht Ruprecht, or uh, a bit like the uh, Austro-Bavarian Krampus. He's called Père Futa, or Father Whip, and can also be found in the uh, French-German Alsace and in parts of Switzerland. Along with the uh, obligatory whip to punish naughty children, he's sometimes portrayed with horns or a blackened face and is known to leave unpleasant gifts for naughty children, such as coal and onions, potatoes, or mustard. Though French mustard doesn't sound like that bad a gift, actually. Now, some tales of this uh, Père Futard present him as the wicked butcher of the Nicholas story, whom the saint captures after his confession, and for his sins, presses him into service, uh, taking over the uh, unsaintly duty of administering corporal punishment where such things are deserved. There is another origin story for this character, which has nothing to do with butchers per se, but it does involve an accusation of cannibalism. In the uh, Alsace-Lorraine region, where both French and German are spoken, uh, this uh, same Père Futard uh, character also goes by the uh, German Hans Trapp, or Hans von Trapp, or Hans Trott. Uh, the last is derived from the name of a knight and nobleman, Hans von Trotta, who in the uh, late 1400s made himself uh, very unpopular. Von Trotta engaged in a dispute over lands with the abbot of a monastery in the uh, Palatinate Forest. During the feud, the knight dammed a river to cut off water to the monastic lands in question, causing devastating floods in the nearby town of Weissenburg. As a result of this and further hostilities, von Torta was summoned to Rome by Pope Alexander VI. The knight refused to appear, writing to the Borgia Pope and accusing him of vague indecencies. 
In turn, he was excommunicated and henceforth referred to in local legend as the Black Knight. Folklore associated him with the devil, dark arts, and even cannibalism. One final story, well, maybe two, uh, of a Scottish butcher. Nothing to do with uh, seasonal November and December themes here. It's the uh, story of Andrew Christie, a butcher working in the town of Perth in the mid-14th century. When famine grips the town, he, along with many others, take to the nearby foothills of the Grampian Mountains, hoping to live off available game. But the pickings are slim, and soon they are reduced to scavenging for grubs or less-than-edible roots and plants. When one of this group of scavengers dies of hunger, Christie is said to have mustered his remaining strength to do what he did best, butchering. He prepares the body as a meal to share with the members of his uh, desperate tribe. After their long months of deprivation, human flesh apparently doesn't taste so bad, and before you know, he's become the leader of a gang of outlaws quite happy to devour any unlucky traveler they can find, along with their horses, naturally. Uh, Christie's method of disabling the ambushed stranger famously involved pulling them from their mounts using a long pole topped with a cleek, an old Scottish word for hook. It's uh, for this he's remembered in legend not as Andrew Christie, but as... Christie Cleek. Eventually, after some 30 travelers had been killed by Christie's gang, a troop of soldiers is dispatched against them. Most of Christie's men are either captured or killed, but he himself manages to flee to the mountains, disappearing forever from history, or nearly so. Years later, so the story goes, a citizen of the town of Dumfries by the name of David Maxwell, a prosperous merchant who enjoyed a long, happy, married life complete with three lovely daughters, meets with sudden ill health or an accident, and as the hour of his death draws near, it brought a final confession that he was, in fact, the Christy clique who many years ago had disappeared into the mountains. While the name Christy Cleek was embraced in Scottish folklore as a sort of boogeyman used by parents to frighten disobedient children, the character has also been regarded as an actual historical figure since 1420. Andrew uh, Winton's uh, original Chronicle of Scotland, published that year, mentions him as an outlaw who set up traps to slay children and women and ate them, all that he might get. A chronicle written in 1577 by the English writer Raphael Hollingshed mentions... A Scottish man, an uplandish fellow named Tristicleek, who spared not to steal children and kill women, on whose flesh he fed as if he had been a wolf. The existence of a historical Tristicleek is made more plausible by Scotland's history of famines, including one around 1340 when he is supposed to have lived, and by court records from the same time in Christie's hometown of Perth, which document the execution of a husband and wife for cannibalism. Now there's one last character I want to discuss. He's not a butcher by trade, but a cannibal. And cannibals do tend to do their own butchering, so making him a butcher of sorts. It's very doubtful he's an actual historic personage, but instead is likely based on stories of Christie Cleek 
In a way, he's the more famous mythologized version of Christie, Sonny Bean. Sonny Bean is most usually said to have committed his crimes in the 16th or 17th century, but some accounts place them earlier. The first mention of him seems to come from a book of famous criminals from 1734, but the most cited version of his story seems to be from an 1824 issue of the Newgate Calendar, which I think I've mentioned before. Uh, originally, this was a publication detailing executions at London's Newgate Prison, but it later morphed into a sort of a penny dreadful. According to that publication, he was born Alexander Bean in East Lothian acquiring the nickname Sawney later in life. Having no desire to earn his living through ditch digging like his father, he left the city to become a highwayman accompanied by a similarly inclined ne'er-do-well by the name of Black Agnes Douglas, who, by some accounts, was compelled to leave town thanks to accusations of witchcraft. They made their home in a remote cave somewhere on Scotland's southwest coast. Accounts don't agree on an exact location, though there's a particular cave in uh, Ayrshire that's come to be regarded as the site. There they lived in secrecy, emerging only at night to commit their crimes, and eventually raising 14 children in this underground lair. The cave was said to extend almost a mile underground, and its secrecy was enhanced by tidewaters, which completely covered the entrance when they were high. Sawney soon established a unique modus operandi described by the Newgate calendar. As soon as they had robbed and murdered any man, woman, or child, they used to carry off the carcass to the den, where, cutting it into quarters, they would pickle the mangled limbs and afterwards eat it, this being their only sustenance. Over 1,000 victims were supposed to have met their end in this way. All the while, Sawney's family grew, eventually becoming a clan of some 50 members, all fathered incestuously from the couple's original 14 children in the isolation of their subterranean den. For 25 years, so says the Newgate calendar, they enjoyed their murderous existence in secret until one of their victims escaped. It was during an attack on a couple in which the husband managed to fight off the cannibals while his wife fell from behind him and was instantly murdered before her husband's face. The female cannibals cut her throat and fell to sucking her blood with as great a gust as if it had been wine. This done, they ripped up her belly and pulled out all her entrails. The man alerts the authorities to the clan's existence, and King James sends a force of some 400 soldiers to eradicate them. The troops are horrified upon entering the cave, finding, along with the treasures stolen from their victims, that... Legs, arms, thighs, hands, and feet of men, women, and children were hung up in rows like dried beef, and a great many limbs lay in pickle. One version of the tale has the troops blasting the opening of the cave, leaving Sawney's clan inside to suffocate in darkness. But a more common ending has them return to town to be executed without the benefit of trial, as it's decided their animalistic deeds obviate the need for any such uh, civil niceties. As you might expect, the Newgate calendar provides a satisfyingly lurid description of their fate. The men had their privy members cut off and thrown into the fire. 
Their hands and legs were severed from their bodies, by which amputations they bled to death in some hours. The wife, daughters, and grandchildren, having been made spectators of this just punishment inflicted on the men, were afterwards burnt to death in three separate fires. Leaving the door open to a plethora of future ghost stories, Sawney's dying words were said to be, It isn't over. It will never be over. While perhaps true for a cannibal ghost, the same can't be said for our episode. Uh, But before ending, I should mention an echo of the Sawney legend, perhaps a bit uh, closer to home. The centuries-old Scottish tale of a cannibal clan living in a remote cave is said to have served as inspiration to Wes Craven in scripting his 1977 film, The Hills Have Eyes, the most shocking, terrifying film you will ever see. The Hills Have Eyes. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends who might be inclined to like what we do here. Uh, We particularly appreciate reviews, as these are the best way to uh, raise the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you've left a review, by all means, let me know, and we'll give you a little shout-out. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with uh, show notes with plenty of images and video links to uh, any film trailers or clips or other music used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. If you're saddened that there is only a single episode to listen to this month, rather than the usual two, I do hope you'll take a moment to reflect on the fragility of this whole enterprise and the earnestness of these requests for support. A special thanks to our new patrons, Jennifer Morley, Adrian Tchaikovsky, Manette Eaton, Rachel Antonucci, and Michael Kaufman. And thanks to uh, E. Warren Howard for his very kind review on Apple Podcasts. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.